This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, my name's Daryl Ong and you're tuned in to Bar None, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. For the first show of 2022, we're going to recap the year that was with the biggest sporting stories of 2021. A year back in January, after 28 long years of grinding her way to the pinnacle of competitive bowling, Charlene Zulkifli caught time on her national career. She, of course, a household name on the lanes and leaving the scene with a total of 74 medals and, of course, a lasting legacy that will be hard to replicate. Early last year, she reflected on her amazing career, the struggles of her early beginnings, the sport's exclusion from the Olympics, the next generation of national bowlers and more. This is a snippet of that interview with Charlene Zulkifli. Actually, I've been thinking about it for a really long time. Hmm. But I just like go after, I think I first wanted to retire was after the Asian Games, I think. Okay. But then my Asian Games, yeah, and then after that, my I spoke to my president and he asked me to, oh, you should retire when you're at the top. Then, so I extended. Uh, I didn't uh, go through with that mm. intent at that time. Then after the KLC Games, then, oh, you should retire at the top. Like, so like every year, I've kind of renewed my license or my contract with myself <laughs> <laughs> to go year by year to see mm. whether my body, you know, can take it or not. This last, especially this last few years has been quite hard because I've uh, had a lot of injuries. Mm. Um, even up through all the triumphs I've had over these last few years, most of it has uh, actually been with injuries, uh, me carrying injuries. Right. But nobody knows. Mm. Um, because I don't really want to um, talk about that at that time, you know, right, because right. there's something that, uh, as athletes, because I was still competing, so I don't want my opponents to know um, that I got injured. But they, they, they knew in 2015 when I did my surgery, but they didn't, everybody didn't know to what extent. Right, got you. But as, as uh, I train, as, tra- uh, as I train and uh, I did all the things that I used to do, my body like uh, kind of like broke down to a certain extent just like telling me oh no it's painful now now even when I train sometimes it's painful mm. so I I think my body said okay you need to stop and you know just let us recover like a car for example you use a car for 28 years nobody uses a car for 28 years anymore <laughs> but imagine if you had a car and you use it for 28 years mm. you need to overhaul the whole engine and stuff like that so mm. yeah basically that's what my body is telling me so why this year I don't really know. I just felt like the time was right. And probably because last year, I had a lot of time to think. Yeah. COVID made us do, yeah. all do that, right? Yes, yes. To think, to re, re-strategize, to actually think, you know, what do I want to do? Because, yeah, I love sports. Uh, that's, that's a no-brainer. But I always wanted to do other stuff in my life. Yeah. Mm, okay. So... I always knew that the time would come soon, but I didn't know when. But I, I told myself I'll know when, when my body tells me. So this last year, I've had a lot of injuries. Like I think uh, I mentioned before in other uh, medias, uh, I had like in 2015, I had uh, to have my foot and ankle operation mm. where I had osteoarthritis and the a bone was jetting out. So it was very painful for me to wow. just walk normally. Mm. So I had to like 
get to scale it and after that even in the KLC game 2017 beginning of the year I had to take some time off from training because I have uh, injury on my right wrist mm. uh, TFCC and then lately this last two years I've also had uh, an injury on my knee you know the cartilage is kind of gone so I had to do like a lot of injections stem cell injections HA injections so like after a while, I'm just like, I mean, there's so much you can help your body, but you, if it does, still doesn't have enough time to do it on its own, mm. things just won't happen. Mm. So I, I was always like still pushing my body through all the rigorous training, gym yeah. and stuff like that. So it didn't work. It wasn't enough. So mm. I was like, okay, I think I need to do something seriously about about this. So that's when that and also like you know thinking to myself I, I always knew that I was going to retire so like I said just now but I was preparing for it for the last more than 10 years because I never knew when, when that time would, would come because yeah. as an athlete you never know what if suddenly you had a debilitating injury and then you had to stop you know within that that next few years so I always prepared for it like I because I still studied got my degree in sports psychology which is my passion then I also helped out in the administrative part of our sport at the grassroots level and also the national level right now because I'm in the, also the assistant secretary um, for our bowling congress and I also coach I've been coaching at the um, development level for the last 20 years Mm. while still being an athlete. So I did all those while I was still competing so that, you know, I won't be, I won't have to be like some of my other colleagues uh, where when you stop, then you'll be like, oh, shoot, what am I supposed to do now kind <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah. So I always wanted to like, okay, once I retire, I want to have options of what I can do. I don't want to just be stuck. I have to do this, you know. I want to have a choice of what I want to do. And this last 20, 50, Yes, I've been preparing myself, but it's still not easy. During the the day of uh, me announcing the, my retirement in front of everyone at the PC, it was like one of the hardest things I've done. I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, um, you dedicated yeah. your whole life essentially to, yeah. to the game, right? And uh, also, beginning of the week where I went to see my teammates and my coaches first to let them know mm. that I'll be retiring. Mm. I, because it was the first day of training after I think uh, we had to stop a bit for the COVID uh, because of COVID. Mm. So we had to come back for this year. So it was the first day of training. Then when I announced that, they were like, huh, are you sure? Are you joking? You know? So they were kind of surprised. But like, I mean, they knew. I quite always hinted that to them that, okay, you know, you guys have to train hard. You know, I won't be here mm. all the time. You know, mm. you have to step up and stuff like that. But they never knew that it's going to be now. Yeah, but it just felt right. And I just felt like, okay, I, I've always said, okay, I have a lot of things that I want to take off my bucket list. Because when I'm an athlete, you know, even, for example, like one of the things I wanted to take off my bucket list was like, we, we train in Sunway Pyramid. Mm-hmm. So I've been in Sunway Pyramid training since it opened in 98 until now. Mm. And I've never actually gone to the ice skating ring <laughs> and tried it after like 12 years. Is it 23? Oh, yeah. After oh, 22 years, yeah. So those are the things that, you know, sometimes mm. gotcha. um, mm. normal people won't realize because I... Like, I of course wanted to, but then even my daughter took skating lessons, but I, I cannot because uh, what if suddenly, you know, suddenly you trip yeah. over yourself and you injure yourself and then suddenly you can't go for competition? Oh, Charlene, because, now you can. Yeah, now I can. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of things that I, I, I can do. So like, you know, mm. and I always wanted to start, uh, to continue my studies in sports psychology. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that 
that I wanted to do as well, uh, even when I graduated in 2006. But I wasn't able to because being an uh, elite athlete uh, with the training, then especially when I had my daughter, mm. with the work that I do, the NGO work that I do for my sport, I was I have like maybe five six jobs. So I yeah realistically, <laughs> but juggle, I, nobody yeah. knows that because mm. it's behind the scene. So I'm always running around everywhere. So I don't really have time to like sit down and like you know do stuff. So now at least I have some time to mm. do the things that I want after you know because a lot of people think when you're when you're retired you like uh, you yeah sports is part of your life and then a lot of them go to de- depression this is actually a fact a lot of athletes go to depression the first two years after retirement so I didn't want to do that when so that's why I, I did all these things to prepare myself but still um, it's not easy you know you're, you're so used to waking up with the routine of exactly. uh, training yeah. gym you know, and then suddenly now you don't have to do all this all those things right now it feels okay but I don't know whether like two three months down the line and whether you know but I, I still keep myself active like doing other stuff mm-hmm. even after I stop from the national team so um, I think it's going to be okay it's just like it's a new new leaf new chapter for me for sure, that for sure. I'm really interested to explore that was a snippet of a conversation with former national bowler Shalin Zulkifli when she joined us on the program to talk about her retirement after 28 years in the sport. If you'd like to check out the full interview, do head over to our website www.bfm.my and search for Barnan, Queen of the Lanes. This week on the program, the biggest sporting stories of 2021 and fast forward a couple of months onto the postponed Euros tournament, a tournament where Italy backed their second Euro championships. However, one of the scary moments in that tournament was when Danish playmaker Christian Eriksen succumbed to a sudden cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated on the pitch. And while occurrences are rare, this incident reminded many young and fit athletes that they are not immune to heart problems. Last year, Dato Dr. Ramlan Aziz, who is the founding CEO of the National Sports Institute and also a six-time Olympic medical officer, joined us to talk about the perils of cardiac arrest in sport. It's not a situation where uh, we're thinking, what's wrong with him? Is he somebody like, uh, you know, 61-year-old man, sedentary man like me sitting on the chair most of the day and all that? No, it is, it is different. And uh, sometimes uh, athletes are so fit, uh, they, they have enlargement of the, uh, of the ventricular muscle, okay? Which sometimes gives uh, some disturbance to the conduction of the electrical impulses through the heart, mm. all right? And uh, the heart may, may become discoordinate and uh, the beating uh, between the, the four chambers of the heart becomes uh, discoordinated, unsynchronized, uh, leading to uh, a failure to, to function properly. Mm. And when the heart doesn't function properly, it's not beating in synchronicity, what happens is that then the blood is not pumped firstly to the brain and, and, and the rest of the body uh, in uh, uh, the follow. So what happens is that you, you pass out, you, you fall. So this is something that, uh, that we need to, to always be aware of. And sometimes it is, uh, in, in, even in the best circumstances, uh, with, with all the best uh, medical and physical examinations and all that, uh, which not only include the medical um, cardiology uh, examinations, but also physiology examinations, which combine both, so that you can see uh, how the heart functions, uh, 
in a stressful exercise situation, mm. you can still get these sort of things. You know, mm. this, this is what what it proves the adage. You know, man proposes, God disposes. So sometimes things happen despite your your best attempts at and making sure and trying to head off all risk. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, uh, this is part and parcel. Yeah. That's why I was very impressed uh, with how they um, they responded to it. Because for CPR and all that, it's not something that happens every day, you know. Uh, it happens once in a very long while. But when it does happen, you have to be ready. Mm. You know, you have to be ready. Your finger on the trigger. So the, 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 the so-called rehearsals and exercises of all the protocols and the procedures and all that, that medical and paramedical personnel undergo, okay, on a on a con- almost continuous basis, you know, uh, every week there must be some 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 review of the processes and some rehearsal, you know. Uh, sometimes they do it on mannequins, and and uh, sometimes they do it on 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 uh, uh, on people themselves, just to make sure that uh, they they they've got this and it's on automatic mode. There's no time to think about anything, you know, mm. because it really has to be to to bypass conscious thought. Because during that time, you have to block everything out. You have to block everything and and uh, not be too aware what's, uh, that there are 20,000 people in the stadium, uh, the referee uh, anxiously asking what's going on, all the players, you know, so on and so forth. You really have to concentrate uh, on the patient, the yeah. one before you. Yeah. So the player is down. So you really have to block all of this out because it can affect you as, as the person in charge of, of trying to save the athlete's life, it can affect you emotionally as well because mm. you are human after all. Yeah. One thing is practice, but another thing is also speed, right, doctor? Oh, yeah. Chances of survival. Studies have shown that chances of survival in a cardiac arrest fall to 10, about 10 to 15% every minute. Every minute. Time is of the essence. Eh? <laughs> of course, time <laughs> is of the essence. But yeah. um, as, as yourself, you know, working in this field for so long, can you actually practice and doing it in real life? Two different things, right? You can practice all you want, but when it comes to the day yeah. and the incident itself, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. In the first instance, you have to be um, so adept at it that it becomes automatic mode. Just like driving, right? When you first start to drive, you start to think, oh, you do you, uh, press the clutch, you know, the days when, when you had clutch nowadays, now it's automatic, yes. So anyway, you have to do this, you have to press that pedal, you have to do, you put the gear in, into engage the gear, so on and so forth. You start thinking about the process. This one, it has to come like breathing, you know, mm. all right? Mm. So much so that, that it is automatic mode, number one. Number two is the quality of the execution, all right? You must really do it technically perfect, you know, uh, not only in terms of, of the, the rate of compression, uh, you know, how many breaths you give, so on and so forth, but also the, the technique. Uh, and, and it is something that, that uh, we really have to, to, to instill locally as well, because we have to really train our, our paramedical personnel who are stationed at uh, all the venues covering uh, events. Not only for the players uh, and the officials uh, in the arena, but also uh, for people in the, in the stands, the spectators also. We've had instances before where people had cardiac arrest and, and all that is one thing. We had people with heart attacks is another. Sometimes with asthmatic attacks, people go into, uh, they wheeze and then they, they start to have their breathing problems. So we have to be ready for any eventuality. Mm. There was a time when, when uh, we had to uh, uh, attend to uh, an England player playing uh, against Pakistan in, in a hockey match, okay. Sultan Azlan Shah uh, Cup, uh, many years ago. I was the tournament uh, medical officer. So what happened was um, in, in a follow-up movement, the Pakistani player, uh, his, his, uh, you know the crook of the, the hockey stick? 
the, the, you know, where it bends, yep. right? Yeah, that one caught nicely at the, at the, at the English player's throat, you know. Oh, wow. So he just fell and uh, he had difficulty breathing. When you, when you have things like that, you, you cannot, uh, you, have be, uh, you have to get the, the player to the hospital. Uh, and, and, and we did. And uh, they eventually uh, had to uh, do, um, you know, uh, monitor his, his breathing, his, uh, the oxygen, oxygenation of his blood and all that. And uh, they decided to do, uh, you know, uh, uh, laryngoscopy and all that. So they, they had to, uh, to, to do a, a tracheostomy. You know, to make sure that the, the guy in, in the first place has to survive. Then once everything has been stabilized, uh, there came a time several days after that and he had to be re- repatriated to his country. Yes, sent back to, to, to England where they, they proceeded to do reconstruction of, of the trachea, you know, oh, wow. because he was, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't working well, he was smashed by, by the hockey stick. Mm. So, and then uh, there were other instances uh, where, where we really need to, to decide uh, there was one time at the Sea Games in Singapore in uh, 1993, when uh, one of our uh, um, karate exponents in the semi-final was knocked out. Of course, uh, in karate, you're not supposed to punch flush, you know, into the opponent's uh, head. Mm. So our our karate uh, exponent was was flat out unconscious. Of course, the his opponent was disqualified. Okay. And then there was an argument. We, we took care of it, and the Singaporean, uh, my Singaporean colleagues were really good. Uh, they, they took care uh, of, of, of our player really well. But uh, I had chanced upon this situation, and uh, we ourselves, amongst uh, myself as a medical uh, uh, official, and my fellow medical uh, colleague as well, had to argue with our own uh, management people, you know, because they were thinking just because the other, the other side had been disqualified, therefore we should get him ready for the final. Right. I said, no, no, no such thing. All right. <laughs> Our athlete has to go to hospital and he should be receiving treatment over there. We are not going to monitor him in the stadium. All right. So we are all in agreement. Myself, my covering colleague and also the, 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 uh, the venue doctor who was an army doctor, you know, mind you. And then uh, between the three of us, we really had to stand our ground against, uh, you know, sporting officials who merely wanted the event to go on. Malaysia not to lose a chance at the gold medal, you see. Mm. So there comes a time when you have to stand your ground. Yeah. The only way to do that is to ask the, the, the offending official, would you like to sign this piece of paper saying that you take responsibility if anything happens to this player? They will never agree to do so. Is there such a paper even? Is there such no, a <laughs> I will write it. I will write a note, put my, my name, my IC number, passport number, whatever, all right? Even my practicing uh, certificate number and hand it to them. This is, I will sign this. Would you like to take over the responsibility? Because the, 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 the responsibility of care is still with me. Mm. Whatever your concerns may be, it does not override my responsibility for the patient. That was a snippet of our conversation with Dato Dr. Ramlan Aziz, the founding CEO of the National Sports Institute and a six-time Olympic medical officer, speaking to us last year about the incident surrounding Danish playmaker Christian Eriksen, who suffered a cardiac arrest during the Euro 2020. If you'd like to check out the whole conversation, search for the podcast The Perils of Cardiac Arrest on our website bfm.my. 
This week on our first show of the year, we're recounting the biggest sporting stories of 2021. And nothing is bigger last year than the much-anticipated Olympic Games in Tokyo. And we'll get to that after the break, so do stay tuned only here on Bar None on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, my name's Daryl Ong and you're tuned in to Bar None, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. And on our first show of 2022, we're going to recap the year that was with the biggest sporting stories of last year. And of course, on to the postponed Tokyo Olympics. And even at the 11th hour, there were protests with local public perception still very much against the Games. However, the Japanese Prime Minister insists that the Olympics will serve as, and I quote, proof that humanity has defeated the coronavirus, while IOC Chief Thomas Bach reiterates that the Olympics pose zero risk to the public. Here's AP journalist Kontoro Kamiya, who was based in Tokyo as he gave us the feel of the ground at that time. It's, it's many things, but many people point out to the money, point out to the sort of economic uh, business, you know, implications to holding the games yeah. and also holding the, you know, sports event for many like sports leagues, like including minor, minor league sports, like, you know, non-major ones. So, uh, and then it's, yeah, it's almost like also, there's also like the political reason for the current ruling party in Japan, uh, headed by the prime minister, Suga. Uh, he needs this to win the election coming up in the fall. So the idea is like they can't, if they can hold the Olympics and like cheer up the people in Japan, then they can win. So that's another assumption. Mm. So many factors are just, you know, intertwined and, you know, it's, at this moment, it's just so unstoppable. Even the public majority of us, like you know, opposed to it. That's the reality in Tokyo, Japan, right now. And I think, just as a side note, I think Japan, Tokyo, especially, their hands are tied, right? Because it's not on them to cancel the Olympics. It's ultimately the IOC's decision, right? That's also the case. So it's you know, even though this is pandemic, you know, nobody expected before you know the 20, like, 2020 and then, but yeah, so that's. A, like very fine points of like the the contract they you know appointed at the IOC to at the IOC is the one who who can only cancel this in a way, and I don't know this is how it's crafted, so the Japanese government then the Tokyo city it's really you know loyal to that mm. you know mm. contract so far. Mm. I mean, also there are also many reasons after that. Understand, understand. I mean, the to- uh, the Olympics is going on. It's in its fifth or sixth day now, uh, depending on when you're listening. Um, and of course, Kontoro, uh, a major difference this year to you know previous editions is obviously the absence of spectators, right? Uh, I'm sure back in 2013 when Japan won the bid, there was a major buzz. There was excitement. Um, right now, though, Japan has put out local polls, and the polls are mixed, although most of them leaning towards the cancellation of the games, right? Um, is mixed public sentiment affecting the overall mood and the morale of the Olympic Games, in your opinion? Yeah, totally, totally. So back then, I mean, 2013, that was the year you know, when Japan won the bid to host the Olympics against Istanbul and Madrid. And then, you know, since then, people are just you know, excited about it. Generally, you know, Japanese people, they have the memory of sort of 1964 Tokyo Olympics, the previous Tokyo Olympics, that went exceptionally, exceptionally well after the sort of Japan sort of resurgence after the you know the World War II, the defeat then. So 
people, especially old people, older people, the politicians, they wanted it to happen again to sort of revive Japan out of so long years of sort of stagnation, economic, you know, it's not doing great against, you know, other uh, China or other countries in Asia. Right. That kind of thing still yeah. happens. And, you know, yeah, Japanese people were really hoping to do that to happen. And then, of course, the COVID happened. And, you know, due to that, you know, many people starting to, you know, just um, they can't think of this to be a sort of celebration of, you know, the, I mean, this pandemic still going on. You know, even though the politicians like organized, they wanted to make this as a sort of proof that the, the humankind beat it this coronavirus. It's not beat it yet, obviously. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it's still going on. Yeah. So the symbolic meaning has changed a little bit. Uh, not a little bit. It's a lot. And then you know, people. Yeah, that ultimately led to like the led to the the decision that you know the organizers pulled off the spectators, uh, making the games behind the behind the course doors, mm-hmm. so that you know, yeah, it's, it's almost not possible to make it you know spectator spectator full or I mean with the spectators, so that you know in that case people could be you know just get mad or you know yeah for sure or, mm. of course then the virus case is gonna go up so yeah. I mean, it's definitely the smart decision not to allow any spectators in there. But over the last few months, Kantoro, we've seen pockets of protests, right? Even during the opening ceremony, there was a huge crowd in front of the stadium. Just to mm-hmm. gauge the temperature, in your opinion, what's the local perception right now like that the games have started? So like in local wise, I mean, the, the these protests, like in protesters, they are actually very minority per se, because, you know, uh, in Japan, you know, first of all, in Japan, protesting public demonstration on streets, it's not that popular, right. common in right. a way, you know, other countries, many, many other countries, including Malaysia, you know, you guys had a protest, you know, before the many things like that. Mm. So then, yeah, so there are only hundreds, you know, if not like dozens of people protesting against, but, you know, uh, other people, they're not generally, you know, not generally a like favorable of like the Olympics, so which means like the public, you know, the public polls, you know, reveal that fact that you know, as I said, fifty to up to eighty percent one time, like you know, uh, depends on how the, the questions are asked, you know, sure. uh, you know, media surveys they are opposed to the games, so that's the sort of more tiny, I mean, uh, subtle reality, I mean, sort of sense of like public how they are felt about feeling about it, so and. Um, yeah. So the, but now that you know this started, and then the opening ceremony happened, and Japanese athletes uh, they compete in the games and just they have won gold medals. You know a lot. You know the table tennis. They yeah. won China. You know judo. The the most powerful you know team in Japan. Yeah. Uh, swimming. You know these. Yeah. So they started to think about you know maybe some people. Uh, started think it could be an okay, it could be you know good thing to have. You know. Some happiness in our lives, right? Finally, exactly. <laughs> a There's glimpse some, of happiness. Exactly, some you know uh, change in the sense of that we, I mean, including me myself, you know, it's nearly swinging between like you know uh, just go for this celebration, you know, sports, you know, festival, and you know. Uh, and on the other hand, it's like more, you know, uh, we shouldn't be doing this, like, in, I mean, the pandemic. So it's really, I shouldn't say this, but 
kind of exhausted in a way between these two extreme sort of you know ways. And of course, like there's also always the, the big debates on like Twitter, on online communities, Facebook, you know, whatever. So it's very kind of divided in a way that yeah, you know, it is. You know, swinging between two sides. That was a snippet of our conversation with AP journalist Kontoro Kamiya, giving us a feel on the ground at last year's Tokyo Olympics. This week on the program, we're recounting the biggest sporting stories of 2021 and sticking with the Olympics, really a games like no other. We reviewed the Malaysian contingent's performance, who managed to achieve two-thirds of the medal targets with a silver and bronze. Will Paris 2024 be the year that the elusive goal finally reaches our shores? Nicholas Anil joined me last year as we reviewed their performance in Tokyo. The target to win not only a gold medals but you know to always better our medal tally um, is an ongoing effort uh, all the time. You know, so th- this is not a target that has been set. Um, just only, you know, um, we always go to the Olympics uh, with certain expectations. You look at the last Olympics in Rio, uh, where we collected five medals. Yeah. You know? um, and, and moving forward five years later uh, to this rescheduled Olympics, uh, the bar was set slightly lower, uh, taking into account, um, you know, the athletes, you know, some of them who are no longer in the scene. And also uh, perhaps taking into account um, the... Um, lack of, uh, you know, intensive preparations which were hampered due to the COVID-19. So, you know, three medals is not a high target. Um, For us to come back with two uh, is commendable. It is commendable, you know. I think uh, Azizul Asni Awang really made uh, the entire country proud by bagging that silver on the final day. You know, at least we ended our campaign on a sweet note. Uh, But if you look at the uh, our history in the participation of this uh, Olympic Sederal, uh, in ninety sixth, we fi- uh, in the ninety sixth edition, we finished with uh, one silver, one bronze. You know, we repeated that in the two thousand twelve edition. But on uh, both those occasions, in nineteen ninety six and two thousand twelve, we actually finished higher up the medal table. You know, in ninety six we were fifty eighth place. Uh, two thousand twelve we were sixty third place, uh, and this time around we finished joint seventy fourth. That goes to show that the level all of 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 the athletes at the Olympics is always increasing. You know, yeah, the man. bar is always set at a higher uh, benchmark. You know, despite the COVID nineteen, you know, despite uh, preparations uh, all across the world being hampered, you know, athletes have found innovative ways to prepare for the Olympics. You know, and it's a totally different mindset when you come to the Olympics. I've uh, spoken to so many of our Olympians who competed in this Tokyo Olympics, and, and for them. The main thing is to have that mental strength, you know. Sometimes you can have all the preparations in the world, you know, but if you don't have that mental fortitude coming into the uh, games like this, uh, then all those uh, preparations sometimes can go out the window. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I, I think overall we, we did really well, but uh, of course we are capable of doing much, much better. We have shown that at the Rio Olympic Games, you know, and... I think we can we can start to plan to do uh, you know to better our medal tally in Paris mm. and perhaps you know in uh, Los Angeles uh, yeah. in the next uh, edition. 
Yeah, you're right in saying that the uh, the quality and the bar performance has definitely risen. But also another thing to point out is that there are there are so many young athletes nowadays and young gold medalists as well. Um, off the top of my head, that 14 year old gymnast from China, right? And you know, skateboarding was also in, uh, included this year. So is uh, surfing, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of new games, a lot of new different fresh faces uh, in the scene uh, this year, especially. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if you if you just look at uh, the module of China and how they have groomed their athletes, right? You know, the 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 preparations or the road to the Olympics starts as early as six years old, seven That's years old. You know, I I recently saw uh, a collage of pictures of how uh, these Chinese athletes are groomed uh, from from ages six to ten. You know, and you have these young kids. You know. Uh, hanging off uneven bars, you know, uh, being trained to be gymnasts hmm. with six packs. These are defined six packs, you know, uh, and, and you know they are they are literally thrown in the deep end, you know, in the swimming pool as as early as five six years old, yeah. you know. So the 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 road to Olympic starts at that age, you know. It 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 doesn't start when when you are in primary school. It it doesn't start when you are in secondary school. When you are in secondary school. Uh, they are equivalent of secondary school. You're already expected to be an elite athlete, performing at the highest level, and expected to be a medal contender, especially in the sports which they are favorites. You know, such as diving, you know, gymnastics, mm. um, and so this is the bar. This is the bar of the Olympics, and you know, this is what I think we have to strive to reach. Of course, there is so many factors at play for us to get there. You know. Uh, it is not just uh, the duty of the sports association. Uh, it is not just the duty of the sports schools. Uh, everybody plays a part, from the parents, you know, to the media, um, and to to uh, those recreational sports clubs who who are actually the the first path to these athletes. You know, uh, when they start their sporting journey, you know, there's so many factors at play. But this is the age, you know, you for for them. You you make it at six or seven, um, you know. And if it doesn't work out by the time you're thirteen or fourteen, then you know you choose another career path, focus mm. on your studies, you know, mm. uh, and you know maybe join the corporate world. But uh, sporting excellence begins at a very young age. Yeah, and especially like you say, you know, all parties involved, society at large, right? Yeah, grassroots in Malaysia has been an issue for a long time now, and definitely, you know, China especially is a scene that we wish to to emulate at least, right? Um, looking into you know our achievements in Tokyo 2020, let's talk about badminton first. Nick, uh, the men's doubles won the bronze medal. Aaron Chia and So Wo Yik brought home third place. Their debut Olympics, nonetheless, you know. Um, eyes on the goal for them for Paris 2024, you think? Yes, for sure. I mean, it's it's only uh, the platform for which uh, they can build on, uh, you know, to strive for gold um, at at the Paris Olympics. Um, you look at Erin Chia and So Wu Yik, um, you know, even though they are a top 10 pair, you know, coming into these Olympics, they had not won uh, a title on the world tour before this. You yep. know, they were always the pair that, you know, uh, would, would, would go high enough, you know, to reach a final, you know, but they they did not have it in them to, you know, break that barrier, you know, and and, and win a title. And I think all of that has changed now, you know. Even though that color is bronze, you know, it is achievement, you know, it means a podium finish and it is a springboard for them to push for gold. And I think, you know, that is the the, the big takeaway from for, for them at least, you know. 
to to start really uh, believing in themselves uh, that they are capable of matching and besting the rest. And if you look at the men's doubles uh, competition, it was a very high competition. Yeah. You know, men's doubles are never, never easy. You know, uh, you always had the formidable powerhouses like China, Indonesia. You know, but you look at at this edition. You know, you have uh, Chinese Taipei. You know. Who are nowhere in 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 badminton in, in in top tier world badminton, and they are now the the gold medalists. So you know the bar is always getting higher and higher, and I think uh, this uh, achievement comes at the right time. You know for this pair, they're still very young. You know they are in their early twenties. Um, they've got loads of talent. You know now they're under a good coach as well. You know from Indonesia, who's already uh, immersed. Uh, you know his his uh, tactics and his formation yeah. uh, in them. And I think uh, it's it's only bound uh, for greatness. So I I really uh, see them going far, and um, hopefully winning gold uh, in Paris. Yeah, and moving on, Nick. The other medalist from Tokyo was was national cyclist Dato Azizo Hasni Awang, right? Uh, what do you think of his Tokyo campaign? Azizo did really well, you know, despite uh, that that early strategy by Jason Kenny to pull ahead of the racing pack. You know, he still needed to cross the line, you know, yeah. as as a as a top two uh, cyclist, you know, and and he did he did so well, you know, to 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 just outpace that Dutch rider. Uh, to get that silver medal, so, that rider who's a world champion as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. You know, so all accomplished stars in their own right, and I think uh, Azizul can can be extremely proud of himself. You know, for achieving that silver, and he has time on his side. You know, age is still on his side. You know, he's only thirty three years old. Uh, Paris is not too long away. Uh, you know, you, you look at him; he's he's a picture of of fitness. You know, he's got so much of of, of muscles uh, packed into those calves. You know, yeah. um, and, and I think uh, you know he's just gonna he's just going to start preparing for Paris right now. You know, there's no time to rest on on his laurels. You know, I'm sure he's already begun to put in the preparations to try and. Uh, Get that goal from uh, Jason Kenny. Yeah, Jason Kenny, like you rightly, rightly mentioned, you know, did a, had a stellar performance, pulled away from the pack. But also, uh, after immediately after the race, you know, you know, looking at you know Twitter timeline and social media and the kind of stuff, there was one thing that a lot of Malaysian fans were talking about about that Australian rider, that uh, Australian cyclist that held the pack up. Right, a lot of people were saying things like, you know, Stachi is not fair. Let's write to the Australian embassy, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Do you think it's justified outrage, Nick? Within reason, you know. Um, within reason, uh, if if you if you had read the comments and also a lot of articles, I think uh, published by even the Australian press, you know, uh, they 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 definitely thought that Matthew Gladser, you know, this uh, Australian cyclist uh, in question, um, had not only um, you know um, destroyed his chances, but he also. Sort of gave the victory, you know. Sort of handed a victory to Jason Kenny mm. uh, on a silver platter, simply because you know he was more concerned of looking back at his competitors, which was the chasing pack, uh, and not realizing that Jason Kenny had already pulled ahead, yeah. so far ahead, mm. you know, and left such a big gap. Um, but you know, this kind of things happen in sports. You know, uh, when when you go out there and and when you are ready to do battle for a medal. Sometimes you're not you're not thinking about anybody else but yourself, you know. Mm. So I think in in Matthew Glaser's defense, you know, he was only out there to try and eliminate competition, to try and stay ahead of the chasing pack, 
uh, but in doing so you know it, it cost not only him it cost the rest of the um, pack yeah. the rest of the pack mm. you know uh, including um, Azizol yeah. um, and Azizol had had come out and and said later you know um, you know there's nothing um, uh, that that could have been done you know in in sports we all want to win but sometimes it is out of our control um, I, I can understand the, the the frustration of 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 our fellow Malaysians you know even even I felt aggrieved but you know this thing happens in sports and yeah. Uh, it, it is definitely not done in in purpose. You know, the guy was just you know trying to trying to look out for his best interest and try to finish as high as possible. But yeah. you know, ultimately, he he did not even finish in the podium. That was Nicholas Anil reviewing the Malaysian contingent's performance at Tokyo 2020 as part of our year in review for our first show of 2022. That was just a snippet of our conversation and if you'd like to check out the full review, you can access it on our website www.bfm.my forward slash bar none. And with that, we've come to the end of our first show of the year. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at BFM Radio and also don't forget to download the BFM app via Google Play and the App Store. My name's Daryl Ong. Till next week, you've been tuning in to Bar None, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. Join us again next week, only here on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.